Mr. Magoo is this, you know, cartoon character. He would walk through the world. He wouldn't wear his glasses because he was very nearsighted, but he didn't like wearing them. And so he really just couldn't see what was going on. And because of that, he would walk through these scenes and walk through these situations and just mess everything up and impact people in these really like hilarious ways, but just be completely oblivious to what he was doing and how, as he walked into the room, everyone started paying attention to him or shifting their behavior, but he was just totally oblivious. And so I love this as an example or an illustration of a little bit of how we walk through the world, that we walk through the world kind of leaving behind this wake or this trail of influence on other people, but we're often oblivious to it, right? People are watching what we do and using what we do to decide what they're going to do. People are paying attention to us. People are listening to the things we say and, you know, remembering them for longer than we expect. But we have a lot of obliviousness about that, a lot like Mr. Magoo. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. Have you ever felt ineffective, invisible, or inarticulate especially when it comes to asking for what you want. You know, given the sheer volume of books in bookstores right now on the subject of influence, how to get more, how to get people to do what you want, how to speak up, you would be, and understandably, forgiven for thinking that we are hopelessly lacking in power. But what if instead we actually all have far more influence than we know? What if instead of a lack of knowledge, we actually have a lack of awareness about the real influence of our words, actions, and even our mere presence when it comes to influencing the actions of other people? Basically, what if, in the words of my guest today, we all have tons more influence than we think that we do? Whether attending a meeting, sharing a post online, or mustering up the nerve to ask for a pay rise, the research shows that we tend to assume that our actions and requests are going to be declined. Or at least that we will have to convince, persuade, or you know, metaphorically drag people across the line to join us. The truth, according to the research, could not be further from that. The research shows, and we're going to get into this today, why people are always twice as likely to agree to your request than you believe. Unless, of course... You talk yourself out of it by not asking for directly for what you want. Vanessa Bonds is a social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Fast Company, list goes on. Her first book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, offers science-based strategies for observing the effect we have on other people reconsidering our fear of rejection and even sometimes pulling back 
to use our influence less. It's, I would say, essentially a call to stop searching for ways to gain influence, get more influence than you have, and to start recognizing the influence that you already have and get smarter about using it. In this conversation, we dive into the distinction between consent and compliance and why this one distinction, if we truly got it, would blow so many aspects of how we live and lead apart. Why people are predictably and reliably always twice as likely to say yes to your requests than you think that they are. And some practical tools on how to ask in such a way to stack those odds even further. One particular tool that she shares up to 34 times more likely to have people agree to your request. The dark side of influence. Why so many people say yes when they actually mean no. And how to use your new Jedi influence powers with integrity and respect. Then um, my favorite part exactly how to say no in those moments when we can't find the words ourselves and why the direct approach is always best. And finally, why we have more power than we could ever imagine as part of an audience, either in person or online, and how the currency of our active attention fuels or destroys some of the most important conversations of our time including why even the best speakers on the planet, and I can attest to this with all the people that I have worked with around the world, have to deal with a sleeping audience member at some point. More on that later. You know, when I started researching Vanessa's work, and I, I try to put, you know, two or three hours aside every week to research the worlds of the people that I speak with, I thought I knew where I wanted this conversation to go which to be honest should always ring alarm bells because the beauty of this podcast is that it so rarely does go the way that I think it's going to. Now, I thought this was going to be a conversation about getting people to say yes to us more frequently or at least tapping into the influence powers we all have that most of us underestimate. And it definitely is both of those things. However, what really stuck with me was how difficult we find the word no. Both finding the words and the courage to say it, and also creating the environments or relationships where we are likely to hear it. How different would our leadership, advertising, fundraising, parenting, or political campaigns be if we genuinely wanted consent, active, well-considered agreement, rather than compliance driven by fear, drama, or obligation? And on the flip side, how different would our own lives be if we believed that, in Vanessa's words, no is a complete sentence? If the people around us knew that they could 100% trust our yeses because they could also 100% trust the clarity and the conviction of our noes. For me, if I'm really honest, I started this conversation wanting to hear more of the word yes in my own life. Like, you know, who doesn't, right? However, I finished it, committed to both saying and hearing more of the word no. And I'll leave it up to you which of those two you struggle with the most. If you are looking to take your journey in influence to the next level right now, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes and download the new version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I personally use and I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to rapidly increasing your level of influence. Just pop in your email address. It'll drop into your inbox in the time that it takes you to make a cup of coffee. 
My newsletter, Influence Insider, also gives one bite-sized tool, strategy, or mindset shift per week, all on the topic of building a more influential life. Once again, hop onto my website, juliemasters.com. However, for now, sit back, stride out, drive safe, and enjoy the timely wisdom of the incredible Vanessa Boss. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa Barnes. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. I want to just jump straight in today and I want to jump in with a question that I always kick off with and, you know, everybody who listens will know it's the question of what idea is having the most impact or influence on you at the moment. Just because as you are, people who are out there looking for amazing ideas just tend to always find them before the rest of us. So what one idea is having the most influence on your thinking right now? Yeah, you know, um, I've spent the majority of my career as an experimental social psychologist studying compliance and basically just having people get other people to do stuff. And we've uncovered all these crazy things that people can get other people to do that they don't realize that like if they just ask people will do this stuff even stuff that they don't necessarily want to do and I spent so many years looking at that aspect of it just like oh look how cool it is that you can get people to do all these things that my most recent idea that I'm just super interested and excited about and can't believe that I didn't really think about before was to kind of switch from all this focus on compliance, which I've done for years, and to start looking at consent, like not just getting someone to do what you want them to do, but actually getting them to consent to it. And it turns out um, that psychologists have not spent a lot of time looking at this like experience, this feeling of consenting, not just feeling forced to do something or obligated to do something, but truly knowing what you're agreeing to, thinking about it, feeling like you have the capacity and the desire to do it and then making the decision to do it. And, you know, there's just so, I I mean, over the past few years between Me Too and even like corporate unethical behavior and uh, privacy concerns, like consent just infiltrates so many of those discussions, this idea of like, People are agreeing to do things that they don't feel comfortable with. They're giving away their privacy. They are consenting to sexual encounters. They're all sorts of situations, consenting to things their bosses ask of them. Um, And so it just feels really important. And I realized that this theme I was seeing in all these discussions, like my research on compliance could really speak to that because people are complying like crazy in my studies, Um, but I don't think they're always consenting. And so what I've been sort of wrestling with now is, is how do you see the difference? How do you understand the difference? And actually just naming that difference, the difference between complying and consenting, because I've never thought about that before. And especially as a, as a leader or as a, a marketer, you know, you are, you're trying to get people to take action. Let's just boil it down to us. You're trying to get people to take action to either an implied request or a direct request. And as long as that action is taken, I don't think a lot of thought is given to was that compliance or was that consent? In fact, I, as a leader, I've never given any thought to, you know, was that compliance or was that consent? And how would you, how would you voice the distinction there? Like if you had to define the distinction? Yeah. And I think, um, 
what you're saying makes a lot of sense, right? Because compliance is just going along with something. It's the act. It's the doing of the thing, right? So I agree. I do what you asked me. And consent is this more internalized psychological state that, you know, I felt, so there's actually a legal definition of it, but psychologists have not really used that definition that much. I'm kind of trying to push us in a direction of using it. So I'm using the same terms lawyers often use. So you feel like you were free to say no. Uh, you feel like you actually were informed, like you knew what you're getting into and you feel capable of having made that decision. Um, and so if you feel all those things and you agree, so there's like that, all that psychology behind the agreement, then it's consent. But, you know, as you say, like someone agrees to something and first of all, we see the behavior. We don't see all the internal strife that may be going on, any, you know, doubts that person might have, any ways they may feel like they don't really know what you're asking. Um, or even like clicking like terms and agreements on a phone, like the people that don't read exactly that, you know? What, what I was thinking about, that was exactly what was running through my mind. I know it's a very basic example, but I think it's a good one where, were we given all the information? Yes. Or the option to read all the information? Yes. Do we know in our heart of hearts that it would take a law degree and probably an hour of our time to read and fully understand all the information? Um, so where does that division of responsibility lie? Because, you know, I literally, I heard a comedian joke once that, there could be three lines of the terms and conditions and the rest of the terms and conditions could say, you know, we will take your firstborn. We are entitled uh -huh. to every dollar in your bank. And I wouldn't care. I would just um, agree. Let me get to the app. So where does the division of responsibility lie there? Yeah, it's really interesting. And again, there's a lot of legal questions around this, but um, there's a lot of interesting psychological questions too, right? So for example, you know, you are responsible for reading that stuff, you know, technically and legally. Um, but if there's something in those terms that are truly unfair and unreasonable, like giving up your firstborn, you know, that should not be something that a company should be able to ask you to do. You can contest that after the fact and say, actually, yeah, I agreed to this. I clicked, I agreed to the terms and conditions or I signed the document or whatever it is. Um, you can then say like, but it wasn't fair. Like there was something wrong with what this company asked me. And so I'm going to contest it in court, for example. But a lot of people don't realize that. And they just assume like, if I click it, if I sign it, you know, even if I didn't read it, if it was in there, they protected themselves and it's done. And I've, you know, officially consented. Um, and so there's just a lot of interesting questions about, you know, what people feel like they can do when they feel like they have agreed to something that they wish they hadn't. Um, and what they can't do and what the law says and how our psychology differs from the, the law says. And I'd say for me, the most interesting piece of it all is how we view people who consent and then kind of go back on it or say, like, I didn't feel like I was really consenting. And so we have run some studies where we find these systematic differences. When we perceive somebody else, we think that they're consenting more than they feel like they're consenting. So like, you know, I could say, you know, you, you clicked on the terms and agreements, you know, you should have read them. You, you did agree to it, but you may feel like, but I really didn't agree to it. You know, like internally, I didn't feel like that. And so that systematic bias, I think is really interesting. And it really does matter, I think, for like leaders and anybody who's asking people to do things that we are walking around seeing more consent than other people are experiencing. And that can impact how they feel about us. It can impact how they feel about the things they consent to, you know, things we may really care about them doing and caring about and buying into. 
Um, and I just think it's fascinating for like influence researchers because we spend so much time studying how to get influence and how to get people to do things like that's the whole focus. Right. But we don't think about this, you know, at what cost and, you know, actually that sort of internalization of what you're agreeing to um, mm. that I really know and feel like I'm doing this voluntarily. And I've heard you say that before, um, which is that there are so many books out there on influence about how to get more, you know, how to get people to do what you want. Um, but you would, you know, you would think if you walked into a bookstore that we were just hopelessly powerless. We were, we're all walking around hopelessly powerless with, with no influence. And the whole basis of your book and a lot of your research is that we just have tons more influence than we think that we do. Um, I just want to start with the implied statement there, which is that we don't think we're very influential. Why is that? Why why are we walking around feeling that way? Yeah, I and I this is really fascinating because I think, like you said, I think you know you would assume based on the popularity of all these influence books that we are like, oh man, we need so much help, like we are lacking in influence. But you know, there's so much research showing how much influence we do have over people. And so it seems to be more of a bias, like a, a miscalibration and an underestimation of the influence we do have, where we constantly, like, we can never sort of be fulfilled. We just keep reaching for those books again and again, assuming, you know, we need more and more and more because we don't see the influence we have. And so that comes from a number of different psychological biases. So one is just sort of a general framing of influence, I think, that impacts it. And that's that we tend to think of influence in this very formal sort of way. We think of it as like, I'm standing across from somebody trying to change their mind, right? And I'm going to know if I've influenced them, if they concede the point or totally like flip their perspective. Um, we think of like standing in front of a room and like get, you know, making this grand argument with our PowerPoint. And then everyone's like, yes, you convinced me. You know, we think that we have this very sort of narrow idea of what influence is. And also the immediacy, I'm just thinking there, that mm -hmm. we, we, we always think of immediacy. Like I'm yeah. going to say this and then this is going to immediately happen afterwards, which in exactly. my experience rarely ever happens. Yeah, exactly. So we think that we're going to get this immediate feedback. And if we don't get that, we assume we've failed at influencing someone. But, you know, if you sort of flip the script and think of all the time someone has said something to you that you recalled a week later or, you know, heard heard from a few other people later and realized, oh, actually, like, there's this cumulative buildup where now I'm starting to be convinced because, you know, the first person said it and I was like, meh. And then the second person and the third person, you know, there are just so many ways in which influence is silent and delayed and cumulative. And we don't get that feedback, even when our words are still bouncing around in that other person's head, you know, just like it happens for us where people's words bounce around in our heads, even if we didn't tell them necessarily. Um, and so the fact that we don't get that immediate feedback is a big part of it. And then there's some actual cognitive psychological biases like negativity bias, which comes up in a lot of different fields where we tend to remember uh, for longer and more intensely the thing, the times that we did fail, the times that we tried to argue with someone and they just totally disagreed or we asked someone for something and they said no. Even if we get like five yeses after that, that no just looms so much larger and it just like burns into our brain and into our memory. Um, and then another bias is something called egocentrism, 
And that's this inability to sort of perspective take and get into other people's heads and recognize those times when we said something and they did take it to heart or they did hear it or they did make some adjustment um, either internally or actually with their behavior later on. We're just really bad at figuring out what's going on in somebody else's head. And so we guess. And when we guess, we rely on these memories that are negative, more negative than positive, right? Um, and so we assume that we didn't have this influence. You, you use this beautiful example in the book, which just had me kind of flashing back to, to my childhood, which was Mr. Magoo. What's Mr. I don't know if anybody else remembers Mr. Magoo, but what has Mr. Magoo got to do? Beautiful poem there with influence and persuasion, power. Yeah, I love using this example of Mr. Magoo because Mr. Magoo is this, you know, cartoon character that I don't know how many people remember at this point, but he was around for a very long time. I think he's become like almost memeable. Um, but he would, you know, walk through the world. He wouldn't wear his glasses because he was very nearsighted, but he didn't like wearing them. And so he really just couldn't see what was going on. And because of that, he would walk through these scenes and walk through these situations and just mess everything up and impact people in these really like, of course, you know, hilarious ways and ridiculous ways, but have just be completely oblivious to what he was doing and how as he walked into the room, everyone's attention shifted because he was doing something weird and everyone started paying attention to him or shifting their behavior, but he was just totally oblivious. And so I love this as sort of an example or an illustration of a little bit of how we walk through the world, that we walk through the world kind of leaving behind this wake or this trail of influence on other people, but we're often oblivious to it, right? People are watching what we do and using what we do to decide what they're going to do. People are paying attention to us. People are listening to the things we say and, you know, remembering them for longer than we expect. But we, we have a lot of obliviousness about that, a lot like Mr. Magoo. I'm thinking my mind's going to parenting, particularly with that. You know, I think that's a direct mirror for me often as to how much more influence I think I am having. You know, you you walk through and, you know, you've had a bad day and you, you're stressed and you, you, you walk through the lounge room and your body's constricted and you're just that little bit shorter than usual and you can feel almost like your entire family start to reorbit around you and shift their behavior and shift because they're so immediate kids, right? Like they're, they're such immediate, such external feedback. And you can feel when you, you know, go take a break, give yourself an attitude adjustment and come back in again, the relaxing of, of the house around yeah. you and not just you, but also, you know, your, your partner, but there's this power imbalance there that means that their survival is so directly dependent on you. They're constantly reorientating themselves around you and that's a really obvious one but obviously as a leader in any environment that happens whether you recognize it or whether you don't when you're walking through or when you're interacting with the people around you yeah absolutely and you know even that that just sort of emotional shift there's something called emotion contagion right that like you walk into a room and you express an emotion or you clearly are feeling an emotion and that rubs off on people. You know, it, it spreads through the group and now everybody kind of is feeling that emotion. As you said, everyone's sort of adjusting to, to fit the new sort of reality. Um, and I, you know, I love parenting examples because I also think a lot of, 
now I have two kids and I think a lot of, you know, about things that my parents would say and how I would pretend not to hear them, mm-hmm. but clearly hear them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and reflect on them. I mean, things that I would overtly disagree with or clearly ignore it to their faces, you know, I would be thinking about for weeks or months or even years later. And so I have to sort of readjust with my kids and remind myself that just because they are not saying anything or ignoring me or even arguing against me, it doesn't mean that they necessarily aren't listening and aren't thinking about that the next day or a week later. Like my kids will suddenly say something that I said that I was sure they, you know, had no interest in hearing or, you know, didn't hear or just like completely disagreed with. And they'll bring it up a week later and I'll be like, oh, that that got Mm. in, you know, and I I feel like I have to trust my trust that. My husband and I, a few years ago, we decided for Christmas rather than, you know, presents and all of the things that you rack your brains off every year to try and think what that person might want, we're just going to give each other five days, five days each. So you can go away for five days by yourself. I go away for five days by myself. You know, when the kids were really, really little, we didn't go far. We literally went just like a 20-minute drive away, got an Airbnb. But it was just a gift, the gift of space. I give you the gift of space because both my husband and I are a little bit introverted. And so that gift was the best gift that could have been given. And my husband went recently and it was a fly comment that my daughter overheard. I don't know if he was on the phone to somebody and he said, you know, I'm taking a break. I'm taking a a five day break. And it was like a week later he had gone and it was bedtime and I was putting my daughter to bed and she kind of looked at me and she said, you know, mom, why does daddy need a break from us? And I had no idea and he had no idea that that had gone in at any level. And we had a conversation afterwards and said that we have to stop referring to it as a break. We need to call it something else. Like this is, you know, I don't know, the inspiration trip or uh, we need to give it more positive languaging because she's listening now. She's five. She understands every single word. And the knowledge that it goes in, I don't know, it feels hefty sometimes. And I know as a leader, you know, when I had a large team, a global team, that responsibility often felt very hefty that, you know, every single thing I say, every facial expression that I pull in a meeting, the way that I walk in significantly impacts everybody in this room and conversations that will happen after this room. Is there, is there a lighter way to hold it? I think is the question. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and I will say that I think that people who feel that weight of leadership are actually, you know, those are the best leaders. Those are the people who recognize the responsibility that comes with power. And not everybody does that. So many other people have that same power. You know, I use a quote in the book, um, when you're in a position of power, your whisper sounds like a shout to people who aren't in a position of power, which I just think is such a great quote. It's from um, Adam Galinsky, one of my colleagues. And you know, that is there, like you said, like facial expressions, requests, you know, people don't feel like they can argue against, argue against you as much as, you know, you might think they, they take these things to heart, you know, they read your expressions and really are paying so much attention to you. And some people, a lot of people in leadership positions don't realize that they still feel like, you know, I just made it to this position. I've got to prove myself. I've got to be loud and argue and be the first person to speak so that everyone knows like why I'm here in this position of leadership. And it's, you know, 
it's a special thing to be able to recognize the responsibility and actually be able to sort of um, perspective taken that way and recognize that, oh, wait, people are looking to me now. I do hold this leadership position, you know, and that does come with this responsibility. So, I mean, to some extent, I think it is a little heavy. And actually, there's studies that show when you remind people. So in general, if you ask people, like, do they want power? Do they want to be in a leadership position? They're like, well, yeah. But then you remind them that leadership and power come with responsibility and you have to make decisions that could be hard. And then all of a sudden it becomes undesirable, right? When they actually remember that part that comes naturally to some people. So there is an element of weight to that. And I just think that, I think reminding yourself that that is the hallmark of a good leader. And that is the hard thing about leadership. You know, I think can make it at least feel better potentially, if not less weighty. But there's something important to that, right? Which is the recognition of the actual weight. Like if you are truly thinking about the actual weight of what you're doing, you're far more likely to come at it with an intention of doing it well. You're not going to get it right every single day. I used to have this saying that would go on in the back of my head, which is watch your face, watch your face, watch your face. Because my face, it can be so expressive. <laughs> it was like, watch your face, watch your face, watch your face. Like, just every facial expression you have is being interpreted right now. So just watch what you're doing with your face. <laughs> uh, but if you can take it seriously enough to at least try and monitor it, then chances are you're going to do a better job than if you are not aware at all. Yeah. Um, I want to start or continue on to the good news part, which the good news being that we have more influence than we think. The good news being that you are more powerful and influential than you think that you are. When you're walking around, people are far more likely to say yes to you than you think that they are. Um, can you give me or ask some core situations where we completely underestimate the amount of power and influence that we have? Yeah, you know, uh, one that actually came to mind when you were talking about monitoring your facial expressions is what I call the power of being in the audience. So I teach classes of hundreds of students and it is so funny how you can feel totally invisible as an audience member in a class or in a play or whatever it might be. And you're just sitting there assuming kind of nobody is noticing you or seeing you and especially not the person up there in front of the stage, right? They're focused on their own thing. but. I can't tell you how often you see the facial expressions of everybody in that audience and you see the person who's like falling asleep and you see the person who's got the resting bitch face and you see the, you know, you see the person who's like nodding happily and smiling and you're like, oh my God, I love you right now. I wish you knew how much you mean to me. Um, yeah. I'm so glad you said the, the falling asleep part because, you know, I've worked part of my job is to work with some of the best speakers in the world. And, you know, these are incredible speakers. These are incredible presenters, as are you. And every single one of them has a story about the person who fell asleep in the audience. Like you look down, sometimes it's someone's partner who just came along to the conference for the ride and had a massive night the night before and who isn't required to be there for their job and not particularly interested in the topic. But everybody has a story of the when you look, you're you're busy talking, and then you look at an audience member, and they are either literally asleep with their head on their hands on the table in front of them, or they've fallen asleep, and then trying to not look at them anymore because it has such an impact on the energy that you're able to bring when you keep staring at this person that's completely checked out. 
Yeah. And I just, I love these examples because they really illustrate that this kind of idea we have about power that, oh, if I'm in the audience, I'm off, right? Like I'm, I could just check out. No one's, I have no power influence here. There's no way I could be influencing the person in the front of the stage. Like it's their show, right? But that person is looking to the audience. And then I talk in the book about all these downstream effects that can have, you know, you're looking and seeing like what facial expressions people are making, what questions they're asking, you know, um, just any kinds of nonverbal indicators that like they're agreeing with something you said or they're disagreeing and you adjust, right? You, if you feel like half the audience is falling asleep, you, you change what you're saying or you're doing. And so they're effectively influencing you at the front of the stage. And then there's some interesting work showing that as you do that, you start to sort of believe what you're doing and saying even more because you are saying it and hearing yourself say it. You're seeing the audience respond positively and you're like, okay, I guess this is the right thing to think or the right thing to be saying. And so the audience is having this incredible impact on that speaker that we tend to overlook. Mm. And when I read that part in your book, I actually took that idea and started playing with it in my head when you play that out on the internet, you know, the, the quote that I have from your book right in front of me here was simply by listening intently to what someone says, by being an engaged audience, we have an impact on how a speaker decides to talk about an issue. And ultimately that can change what they end up believing about that issue. And, you know, we can do that from the audience when someone's talking on the stage, but we also do it every day, all day on the internet, the things we engage with, the things we pay attention to, the things we click on, the things we read. And often I feel like we we are a little bit divorced from the influence that our attention, uh, engaged attention actually has on what continually gets fed back out into the world. What does owning and, you know, 100% owning and using that influence effectively look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a great point. And I think it's really about being mindful. I mean, if there's one thing that I want, you know, people to do more of when it comes to influence is to be mindful of it and aware of the fact that, for example, your attention, your clicks, your comments, that is something that's shaping the narrative, that's shaping what other people see. Um, You know, a lot of us don't understand it stick with like the social media idea. We don't, first of all, we have something called an invisible audience. A lot of us underestimate how many people actually see the things we do online. So we think that we can judge that based on how many people like our comments or, you know, retweet things or engage with us when in fact, lots of people are seeing the things we say and even the things we like, and certainly the things we retweet many more people than we tend to realize. And so when we do engage with something, when we do, you know, just like something. We are sharing that with so many people. And if we're not mindful about that and mindful of the influence that we have, that we are broadcasting this essentially, I think that's where you can run into to problems. And it's not about, you know, a particular stance or, you know, a political ideology or anything. It's about being aware that your actions are impacting people more than you tend to notice if you're not truly mindful about it. I think that's also a misunderstanding of the fuel of it. I mean, I I know certain people who have very, um, very hardcore stances on topics, you know, agree or disagree, they have very hardcore stances. And they will literally look 
at even if they get 200 comments disagreeing, that to them was a successful post because it garnered attention, it got engagement. And so even by disagreeing, publicly disagreeing, we have fueled the very thing that we were disagreeing with. How do we make a decision about what we weigh in on and what we don't weigh in on? Yeah, and this is actually really tricky. And we have a project here at Cornell that we're working on to try to figure out how to be basically an upstander in social media so that you promote views that you think are useful, either upstanding against, you know, harassment when you see harassment or, you know, calling out misinformation or things that are actually problematic. And the thing is that on the one hand, yes, if you engage and disagree, now that person's getting more engagement and they're getting more attention. And to some extent, that can be a win for them. But at the same time, there's a whole, again, invisible audience watching this whole thing play out. There's so many more people watching how people respond to this initial post than who are actually actively engaging in it. And so they are learning sort of what's okay and what's not. You know, they are learning what gets attention. So there is that element. But they're also kind of seeing if a bunch of people are disagreeing. They're like, okay, this person said this thing, but actually like people disagree with that thing. Right. And so they're kind of getting that that context. Um, one of the things I'd, I I like to sort of suggest about social media is the, the like quote retweet or actually providing commentary around things like pulling quotes out from the things that you're tweeting or actually um, kind of encapsulating whatever it is you're sharing with your own take on it so that you are adding context so that you're not just sort of retweeting and you know, putting something in the comments, you're contextualizing it. The first thing someone sees is like, okay, this is my take. And oh, here was the initial tweet. Now I, I know how I'm supposed to interpret that. Um, and the truth is that we don't really know at this point. We're trying to figure it out. We don't know what the best way to comment is. You know, there's a lot of um, problems around like shaming and like this shaming kind of way of talking. But at the same time, uh, you know, shaming is effective for that invisible audience. Like they're like, oh my God, I'm not going to say something like that because I just learned that, you know, people say terrible things about you when you do that. At the same time, it's not the most effective dialogue. So it's, it's really, we are trying to figure out right now, like what should you do when you mm -hmm. see something problematic online? I want to come back to the concept of, of agreement now. Because that was one of, I think, from your research and the book, that was one of the things that stood out to me the most, that people are far more likely to agree to a request that you make than, than you think that they are. Can you walk through um, some of your findings there? Because they just this, the numbers just blew me away. Yeah, this is, I, I mean, I agree that... The numbers have always blown me away. Like this research never stops being surprising to me. And I think it's so fascinating because I think we have this mental model or this theory of how other people work, that people are disagreeable, that if we ask for something, their default is going to be to say no to us. And so it's like all about getting past no and getting to that yes. But in fact, in our research, we have people guess basically how many people will agree to some request. So, you know, we've started out as small as like ask someone to fill out a survey or questionnaire, um, you know, ask someone to borrow their cell phone and make a call back to the lab where we track like, did you get a unique user's cell phone? Um, 
you know, asking for donations for charity. And then, I mean, we might get to this later, but also then asking for some like unethical things as well. And so each time, you know, people think if I, when I ask people, most people are going to say no. What, so what happens is we bring people into the lab. We tell them you're going to ask people, for example, um, for their cell phone. And we say, you have to get three people to agree to this. How many people do you think you'll have to ask before three will agree? And when we tell people this, they are completely freaked out. They ask us questions like, you know, what if nobody agrees? What if I can't finish in, in the time that you gave me for this experiment? Like they are clearly super nervous and anxious and, and think that, you know, no one's going to agree. And they guess that they're going to have to ask, you know, um, about twice as many people as they actually wind up having to ask when they go out and actually do this request. And so they go out and they do it. They find out, oh, wow, this is like way easier than I expected. They come back and they're like happy and just they're like, oh, my God, people were so much nicer and agreeable than I expected. And so in general, we find actually that people are twice as likely to agree than we tend to think. And if you kind of just extrapolate that out for a second, so that means for any request that we have, be it in the, you know, in the workplace, in a public environment, within our communities, people are twice as likely to agree than we think that they are going in and making the ask, which raises the question, how many more things would we ask for if, if, we, if we knew that to be true, if we believed that to be true? I just wanted to talk about the how there for for a moment, has there has anything come out of the research around the how we ask, whether we ask when we're rushed, whether we ask, you know, because when someone asks me to do something and they're in a rushed state, I'm probably tw- even more likely to say yes, just because it's rushed, I don't have time to think about it. Has any been research been done about the how we should ask? Yeah, so actually, and this is kind of a caveat to the general, like people are twice as likely to agree as we think, is that that's when we ask face-to-face. So if there's one thing that makes the most difference in our studies when we look at how you ask, it's asking in person versus over email. Over email is like the worst way to ask for things if you want to yes, you know, and this gets to the compliance consent debate. There are times where you should ask over email because you really don't want to put people in a position where they feel like they, you know, can't say no. Um, But if you really want a yes, face-to-face is 34 times more effective than asking over email, at least in one of our studies. Um, And then it's even more effective than asking over the phone or asking over Zoom. So that was a major sort of um, moderator of our effect in terms of how you ask. Another one is whether you ask directly or beat around the bush and ask indirectly. And so when we asked participants, uh, do you think people are going to be more likely to agree if you basically say, you know, can I have your cell phone versus, you know, I could really use a cell phone like this kind of I'm going to hint but not ask. They thought it was going to be more effective to hint. They felt like it would be more polite, like this was, you know, the nice way to ask in this indirect roundabout, like I'm going to hint and let the person offer help kind of way. But in fact, it was so much more effective when they asked, you know, can I borrow your cell phone? Uh, And so, in fact, that is more effective if you ask directly and face-to-face as opposed to kind of our favorite ways, which are like indirect hints and over email. So (laughs) our sort of intuitions are are way off there. Which is interesting because there's a disconnect there, right, between 
I know it feels so much better. It does to to ask via hint and to just put put a suggestion out there and then have someone offer. That feels like the kindest, most respectful, most polite way to do it. But when you're on the receiving end of that, when someone's hinting around and not just you, you, you know, you're sat there just thinking, we well, just like, what is it that you need? Like, just just ask me because <laughs> I can't put the pieces together. Um, so we've got the the fact that we're twice more likely to agree than people think that we are to say yes to something. We've got the fact that there are ways to increase those, you know, up to 34 times, even more. But there's there's a counter to that, isn't there? Which is, are we twice as likely to agree because we think it's a great idea and we're doing something that we want? Or are we twice as likely to agree for different reasons? Why, why are we more likely to agree than we think? Yeah, and so this is where I think the story gets a little more interesting and a little trickier and where we come to this kind of question of consent and compliance. And there is research showing that people are more pro-socially oriented and more helpful than we think. So that is an actual finding and it's real and people will agree to things, you know, because they're happier to help than we imagine. But people also agree to things because they find it so hard to say no. And we find that in a number of our studies that it's just, you know, and you can kind of imagine yourself on the other side, not not asking, but being asked, right, for something face to face. If someone comes up to you and says, hey, can I borrow your phone or will you fill out this thing? You know, there's that just awkward moment where you're like, how do I say no? I got to find the words. You know, I feel really guilty. I feel really bad. I just feel like I can't say no. And so often people just give into that. And the easier thing is just to say yes. And agree as opposed to coming up with some way to get out of that and say no and like make the whole thing uncomfortable. And a lot of strategies are designed around that, right? Like the, the people who stand and ask for stand on the streets and ask for your money for certain charities, ask you to sign up to donations to certain charities. And I think that the reason that is behind the strategy is that it's for the greater good. You know, it's a, it's a moment of discomfort. We're deliberately putting someone in a position where we know it's hard for them to say no. But the greater good is more important than, you know, the method in a way. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, uh, an example I see here all the time is cashiers at the grocery store, right? So sometimes they'll have like the sign that just says, you know, would you like to donate to such and such cause? And sometimes they get a bonus if they can, if they actually ask people explicitly and say, would you like to donate to this cause today? Um, And so they're sort of incentivized to ask in person, face to face directly. And it is so much harder. And I've seen so many people say, uh, okay, you know, in that moment, as opposed to just seeing the sign and kind of just ignoring it. And I think that is a great example of, you know, we're going to get way more yeses and way more donations. And it's maybe worth putting people in this awkward position for that reason. If we overtly ask like face to face. Which so many questions here, you know, when is that and I don't, I don't expect anyone to have an answer to this, but when is that justifiable? Because, I mean, there's a line there, right, that is anybody who wants anyone to do something would say that it's justifiable. It's justifiable putting people in a position where it's hard for them to say no. It's justifiable um, putting this message out there, even though I know it's going to impact the vulnerable um, and the young, these advertising messages that are aimed at teenage girls. It's justifiable because it's in their best interest to feel this way, to do this thing. Is there a justification? Is that just a um, 
a gray area that we use as a as an excuse to manipulate that's a hard harsh hard word but to make the point or is there genuinely a line there and we need to find out where it is yeah I mean you know I think that there's clearly a line there and people clearly take advantage of some of these um, situations so you know there's plenty of examples of people who are super aware of the fact that people find it hard to say no and wind up doing things like, um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is social engineering, where you get access to people's passwords and infiltrate their data and things like that and basically hack into their systems by asking people directly, you know, for their password or coming up with a story that people feel uncomfortable challenging um, because those people know that people find it hard to say no. And if I just ask them in a certain way, I'll get what I want. And so that's like a clear line of like, this is an unethical use of this kind of tactic. But then on the other hand, with a lot of like charities and pro-social requests, once someone agrees, we actually do feel pretty good. Like if we're the person, you know, I might be put on the spot and some organization might say, will you donate to such and such? And I'm like, oh, I can't find the words to say no. So I'm just going to, you know, go ahead and donate or sign the petition or do whatever it is. And then I walk away and I usually actually convince myself that I'm a pretty good person for doing that and feel this warm glow of like having done something good. And so I think there's plenty of cases where you put someone on the spot, they can't say no, but the two people still walk away happy with the interaction. You know, one person got help or got a donation and the other person feels like, okay, I'm a good person who donated. And so I think there's plenty of cases where it's still okay to do that. But then of course, um, and this, if you want, we could talk about uh, some of my other studies where we kind of draw our own line where we said, okay, here's something that is clearly unethical and everyone is going to agree it's unethical. And we're going to see the same kinds of dynamics where people feel uncomfortable saying no. And so we ran studies where we wanted to see how far we could push our effect. And so instead of having people ask for favors or donations, we had people ask people to vandalize library books. And so what we did. I would love to know how you, I'd love to know how you phrase that request. <laughs> Hi, would you like to vandalize a library book? Yeah, we had to be a little bit more creative uh, in our script with that one. <laughs> But, you know, it wasn't so far from that. So, and they weren't real library books. So we, you know, we took my books off my bookshelf and put some um, of the library, you know, codes on the spine so that they looked like library books. And we gave them to our participants and we said, okay, you're going to go into these random libraries. We're going to assign you to which library to go to. And you're going to go up to people who are just sitting and reading or doing whatever, studying. And you're going to say, I'm playing a prank on my friend, but they know my handwriting. Will you just write the word pickle and pen in this library book? And then they were to hand over the library book and the pen. And they guessed how many people they would have to ask before. I think in that case, it was like three people would agree to do this. Um, and they guessed something like, I should look at the numbers, but it was like maybe 12 people or something before three would agree. And then they went out and actually asked people. And it turns out that more than half of the people actually agreed to vandalize this library book. And so it actually was a very similar finding to when we had people ask for favors. So people were twice as likely to agree to do this unethical thing 
than our participants expected. And I think it's so fascinating because they recorded what people said and people would say things like, you know, this seems wrong. I don't know if we should be doing this. Um, I don't know about this. Like they were clearly hesitating. They were clearly unsure, but they still couldn't find the words to say no to this person. They just couldn't sort of actually make the leap to being like, no, I won't do this. And so a lot of those people who hesitated just wound up agreeing. So I just want to unwind that for a second, because you've said, you've said a few times, we can't find the words. Like that's, it's really hit me a few times that you've said it. And I think for anybody potentially out there that's listening, that is maybe outspoken or can easily find the words, that's a bit of a huh moment. Like, how do you not find them? They're right here. How do you not find them? No. So talk to me about that, because you've obviously seen that come up over and over again. One of the reasons that we find it hard to say, well, that we say no, sorry, that we say yes when we mean no, is that we can't find the words. Yeah. And it's funny because you're like, you know, well, the word is no, right? So like, how can you not find it? <laughs> but What's so interesting is that that isn't acceptable to people. So I, you know, I, I hear this phrase get thrown around sometimes that like, no is a complete sentence. And it's such a nice like bumper sticker kind of phrase, right? Like you can just say no, you don't have to explain yourself. But there are so few people, like there are a few, but there are not a lot of people who actually feel comfortable just saying no and leaving it at that and, you know, not giving some explanation or some reason. And that's because, I mean, we're evolutionarily wired to maintain social relationships and social ties. And so we care about offending somebody, rejecting somebody. We care about what saying no might mean for the relationship, you know, what it might say about how helpful we are as people, how that person might think of us after um, we feel guilty. And so all of those worries come into play. And so we just saying no doesn't assuage all those worries, right? So you have to add, you have to basically find a way to say, we're still good. You know, I'm still a nice person. I still like you, but the answer is no. And so that's a lot of stuff to get across in the moment to like feel okay with saying no because you've preserved the relationship. And so that's one reason people just have a really hard time coming up with what they're going to say that preserves all those like relationship concerns. So we have the, we have the no is a complete sentence. And I think that's just worth underlining for a second there. And I think as human beings in general, when we're in a moment where we have that disconnect between, there's a difference between the, you know, I, like donating to charity. I don't really have the time. I, I have a dentist appointment, but I know this is a good thing to do, but there's a difference between that and that inner feeling of this is wrong. This is not right for me. I don't want to do this. And then the word coming out of our mouth, of course, those moments. So no is a complete sentence. Number one, number two, is there, um, is there another way that you have either observed or found that is an effective way of saying no, if you know, one of our largest challenges is not having the words, what are some effective words? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think again, anything that kind of does those things that says like, we're good. I'm still helpful. I will help you, you know, things that say like, I will help you in the future. I'd love to another time, things that point to, um, uh, reasons that are not relational, you know, like 
people often feel a lot better saying no if they have a clear excuse, right? Like I can't, I literally can't right now because I have an appointment because that means like my no is not contingent on something between us uh, and our relationship. It's about like an actual instrumental outside force, right? But I think aside from all of those kinds of specific things that we could say, I think the biggest things are if possible, to sort of have a script in your back pocket in general, if you know that you might go into a situation where you have to say no, or if you feel like you are a person who has a lot of trouble saying no. So whatever that script is, it doesn't matter that much. It's that you actually have planned something out in advance. So you know, like, okay, here's how I'm going to say no. Here's here's like my go-to thing. So I actually have... Um, I got this. Yeah, do you have one? That was going to be my question. <laughs> so I have one for like if I'm getting asked for donations because I feel like I'm, oh, I mean, I think maybe we all feel like this, but like um, especially pre-COVID, there was always like, you know, petitions or people walking by or like people at the, um, the counter and all this stuff. And so I would always feel so uncomfortable and I wanted to convey, you know, like I'm not saying no because I'm not a helpful charitable person. Like I always feel like that's the default assumption, right? That people want to preserve. And the truth is my husband and I do give to charities. We just make a plan at the beginning of the year and we set up our monthly donations. And so, so now I have my like go-to script, which is, oh, you know, I already gave to charity this year. Or a lot of times if it's the one that is asking me, I'll say, oh, you know, I already give to your charity. Um, and that is a great one because that says like, you're great. You know, you should feel good for asking because I actually totally agree with your cause. Um, but something that's, that still conveys something that makes me feel okay. Like, I want you to know I'm still a good person, <laughs> but yeah. no for now. Yeah. Yeah. The, I use one that's very similar in, in those situations, which is, you know, we have set charities that we give to every year. We've made our decision for this year, but thank you. You know, I appreciate the work that you do. I appreciate that what you do is hard and, you know, thank you for asking me. Um, but, and I also think that that tying it to an outside force is something that's, that bears repeating as well. You know, some of the most, some of the people I know who are the most effective at saying no, tie it to a decision that they have made that is outside the bounds of this relationship. So, you know, I'll use an example of asking somebody to to work late or to work on weekends. And someone who says, you know, I've this has nothing to do with you, I or how much I, you know, am committed to this organization. However, my partner and I have made the decision that we spend families as a, we spend weekends as a family. Um, I'm open to talking about how else this work can be done, but this is a decision that we've made, you know, separate to my work and it's one that we're committed to. You know, taking it outside the bounds of you, me, and this conversation. Uh, yeah, I love that. And you know, that's actually a negotiation uh, strategy I teach when I or when I teach negotiations. It's the you know you point to this outside um, player who like they're actually holding. You know, they have some decision making power, so you can't actually make a decision at the table. And I think that is that's super helpful. It's like again, it's not about you and me right here. There's like other parties in play who I need to consult with, or you know, we've made prior decisions. Um, the other thing I really loved that you said was the thank, but thank you for asking, because I love adding thank you for asking, because asking is so hard. Like those people do not enjoy asking. Most of them, there's like a weird, small subset of people who love asking people for things, but the majority of people I think really don't like it. And so acknowledging that, like, it was hard for you to ask. Thank you so much for asking. 
but here's what's going on. You know, I think that's, that's a great thing to add to. And even I'm just going back to parenting again in my head, because so much of this is an interplay with how we relate to other human beings. Um, and that children are often at the pointy end. They just show us what's going on, whereas adults just don't tend to show us what's going on. And being asked to play, you know, I lose track on the weekend how many times, you know, mama, can you play? Mama, can you play with me? Mama, can you play with me? And I, I don't think I've ever said thank you for that. And what a beautiful thing that is, you know, thank you for asking me to play. Um, I can't right now. However, you know, give me 10 minutes. I'll be right there. You know, just to acknowledge that the other person wants to include you, that they wanted you to be a part of something, whether it works for you or whether it doesn't. I think that that's, you know, that's definitely something I'm going to take and, and do more of. How has this work that you do changed how you go about making requests in the world? how more likely you are to do it without putting words in your mouth or less likely you are to do it and how you do it. Yeah. Um, it definitely, I mean, I don't know how it couldn't, but it has definitely made me more mindful and like super <laughs> conscious of, of asking like the whole process behind it. Um, when I need something and it's not going to hurt anybody, like I am much more comfortable asking. Um, so I, I love giving the example of like, you know, when I was pregnant and there's like the classic, you know, you're like, you know, standing on a subway or something and you're tired and you'd love someone to give you their seat, but everyone's on their phones and not paying attention. It, you know, ordinarily in my life, you know, pre doing all this research, I would have just stood there and like tried to make eye contact with someone and like look pathetic and try to get them to, you know, like offer, right? This, thing. Just stand there kind of quietly sighing. Yeah, exactly. Make a lot of like sad pregnant lady sounds. Um, but, you know, with this research, I, I would just go up to people and say like, do you mind if I, you know, have your seat? Um, and people were quite happy to do that. And like, they actually feel good about it. You know, they're like, okay, I just helped a pregnant lady and they wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't asked and asking directly gave them a chance to help and like got me what I needed. Um, but on the flip side, I'm also super, super cautious about asking things of like junior people, um, and how I ask. And, I, I almost always, you know, give them a chance to respond to me over email or in some like less intense, immediate sort of way. So they have time to think about it. Um, they have time to process like whether they want to do it and write back in a way that, you know, they feel okay. Um, so that is something like when I ask something and I'm not sure someone wants to do it, especially when they're junior, I try to ask in a way that gives them an out and also is over email. So it's not on the spot. Although I got in trouble for this. So I have taken this too far, apparently. My students are very upset with me because my daughter was selling Girl Scout cookies. And I asked all my colleagues, like as the person who studies asking for like charities and things like that, you know, I it's just so awkward to ask, then ask people for things. So like I asked all my colleagues if they would like to buy Girl Scout cookies with my email and my long, like, please don't feel obligated kind of thing. But I didn't ask my graduate students because I was like, that's like, it's on their, you know, advisor. I feel like they'll feel pressured to buy things. I can for my totally kid. see that. That would feel, <laughs> that would feel slightly off to me in, in not so much in the receiving, but in the doing of it. Yeah. But then they were very upset with me because the Girl Scout cookies came in 
<laughs> they, like, they didn't have any cookies. They were like, why didn't we literally went to other kids to buy Girl Scout cookies? <laughs> so I've been told that I have to get better about just asking and just doing it in a way that <laughs> that allows them to say no if they would like. I, that brings me beautifully onto what I think is my favorite line. Um, my favorite line from your book. And I've literally, I've got it here in front of me. And then I've got in capitals next to it, underlined, worth saying again, Um, which was, if we want genuine agreement, we should always be thinking of the ways that we can make it easier for others to say no. Now, I can't think of an, well, I can't think of another human being, maybe there's a lot better human beings out there than I know, that goes into a situation trying to influence somebody with the priority in their mind of making it easy for them to say no. You know, we're, we're usually walking in with a how can I convince, convert, persuade. We're not walking in going, I'm just, I'm going to make this person 100% clear on, you know, that they, that they have an out here if they want it. What, what are some of the ways, because I love that, that's just completely counterintuitive. It flips the way that we consider um, that beautiful languaging that you gave, which was consent versus compliance. Um, how do we do that? I know you touched on one there, which is giving, you know, via email, giving people an out, giving them time to think about it. What other ways can we make sure that we do that? Yeah, I think the time to process is huge because it gives them a chance to formulate their no, right, which we talked about is a, is a hard thing to do. Um, but, you know, I think it's also just like, a mental reframe because there's nothing wrong with wanting someone to do something and asking them and hoping they'll say yes. Like there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with that. And I wouldn't want people to start hoping people say no or so, you know, it's not like that. But we start from this default. We are too basically insecure about our own influence and the power that we do wield over people. So we go into these situations assuming that their default is no and that now we have to push to yes, right? Like we have to convince them to do something. We have to ask in all these elaborate ways and use tri- like trick them into getting that yes. And so we think it's easy for people to say no when in fact it's incredibly hard. And so I think it's part of it is just in reframing the way we think about it that, you know, it might not be easy for this person to say no. So I can still ask in a way that, you know, makes my best case. I don't want people to like give up on the possibility of like, you know, selling something that they care about selling, but then, you know, then gives the person space. And so I think like it's kind of mixing and matching some of these things like, you know, asking directly in person and then waiting for the answer like over email, you know, or, telling them to answer you the next day or something, giving people time to think about it. So you kind of can put your best foot forward for the ask, but then also allow space for the potential no. And I think that shows respect. And I think that's where you do get genuine agreement or consent. And you're not just getting people who agree to something and then regret it or, you know, feel bad about it. And, or, and sometimes, you know, wind up, bailing or you know after the fact and so it winds up being worse for everybody anyway or end up at some stage you know bailing or revolting altogether revolting yeah Yeah. is that a word I think it is (laughs) um revolting altogether and you know again I keep coming back to this parenting space because this whole conversation just plays out so beautifully there 
you know, I remember when my when my kids reached this point where, you know, no became, they stopped being compliant. No became, you know, an, a valid option for them. And at that point, you can still play the power card, right? You know, I, why? Because I told you to do that. Because, you know, what I say goes. But I've had many times where I've looked at my kids and thought, you know, one day they're going to figure out that I can't make them do this. Like one day they're going to figure out that, you know, there's an equal, there's going to become an equal power balance here. Are there, how do we practice those moments, those moments of where we let someone know, you know, this, this is really important that you do this and you still have choices, especially when they're kids. And we know they're going to try and take the easy option, which is, you know, not to get to wear their pajamas out to the shopping center because it's easier than getting dressed. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think a lot of this goes kind of full circle to things we were talking about before. And a lot of it is just like so much trial and error error with my own parenting. So one of my kids is four and she is very much in the like, if I pick out her clothes and say, this is what you're wearing today, there's just no way. And so we have, you know, I have to lay out three outfits and then it has to be her choice. Like she has to have the autonomy if she's going to get dressed at all. But if I say something, like if I make a very strong case for an outfit and then I leave the room and like make it like you are a hundred, it's your choice in the end. Here's my very strong case. And I just leave and I don't push it. And I trust that that kind of sunk in. I'm surprised at how often she will go with the one I said. Like she may even start with another one and then like show it to me and then run back. It's like, oh, but I know you want that. So she'll run back and like get the other one. Um, so I think there's, an- but there's a boundary in place there, isn't there? Which is you have to wear something, you know, here's my bottom yeah. line. You have to, you have to wear something. Does that, you know, let's push that out into the, the, the adult world, the grown up world. Is that, is that part of it also, which is, you know, here is my request. Um, you, I give you, you know, full time to think, you, you know, is okay. Um, however, bottom line is this still needs to get done in some capacity, or I need to find a way to make this happen in some capacity. Can we walk in with that kind of a boundary? I think so. I mean, I think so. One, um, influence technique that people talk about a lot is asking the other person for advice. So instead of saying like, I want you to believe this, or I want you to think this, or I'm trying to convince you to do this, it's okay. What would it take for you to, you know, believe this? Like, what would you need to hear to agree with me? What would you need to be able to do this or to say yes to this? And so it is giving them autonomy. Like you tell me how I can convince you. And it kind of puts that person on your side. Now you're almost a team. Like, you know, it's this more advising relationship as opposed to this contentious, like I'm, you know, fighting with you kind of relationship. Mm. So I think that is, um, that's one way. I mean, the other thing I've thought about is this idea that there is a boundary. And I think one really interesting thing is that when we ask for something, one of the boundaries is that an answer has to be given. And again, we think no is like the easy thing and the, but like, no is hard and the yes is hard. Like, you know, either way they have to do something often um, that might not be desirable. You know, like if it's trying to get someone to do something they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily want to do, the no is also undesirable. And so that something has to happen. And that's one of the the big reasons that email 
is so ineffective in a lot of cases because there's le way less of a boundary. You can ignore an email. You can, you know, just ghost somebody. And so when it is face-to-face, -face, um, there is kind of this understanding of like, well, we do need to come to a resolution about this. Yes or no, mm -hmm. like something needs to be decided. Positive or negative, mm -hmm. we need an outcome one way or another, either now or, you know, by the end of the day. And I loved what you said there about the, you know, the fact that it needs to get done isn't under contention here. Talk to me about what you need in order to get, like, if, if, if this has to get done, what do you need? What support do you need? What, what would you need in order to get this done? And then you're having a discussion about the how, what would it take for you to consent to, to doing this in a way that works for you as opposed to whether or not it needs to get done at all? You, I was just going to finish with something that you said, which I think it was in an interview I was listening to that you had done. And you had said, we are all harder on ourselves than we need to be. No one else is that hard on you. Which kind of surprised me that that is a conclusion, one of the conclusions that you have come to as a result of your work. Tell me, you know, how you got there and how that's, how that's sitting with you now. Um, so a lot of that comes from work by Erica Boothby uh, and my colleague here at Cornell, Sebastian Derry, on what we think other people think of us and how we think we fit into like the social pecking order. And, you know, there has been years and years and years of research on sort of overconfidence you know, people thinking that they're more moral than other people and less biased than, than other people and better drivers and like all these, you know, things. But in the years since, there's been a lot of research on our social perceptions. And this research has shown that we also have misperceptions socially, but they go in the opposite direction. We're actually underconfident. And so Erica Boothby has research on something she calls the liking gap where basically if you interact with another person and you have a conversation and then you walk away from that conversation and you ask both people, you know, how much did the other person like you? How much did you like the other person in that conversation? We underestimate how much the other person liked us. And it's because we walk away from a conversation obsessing about all the things that we did wrong, right? Like, I, I asked too many questions or I didn't ask enough questions or I spoke too much. I didn't speak enough. I said that stupid thing. I know that they, they heard this, you know, we just do this postmortem where we are so hard on ourselves. And first of all, the other person is doing that to themselves and they definitely are not picking apart the conversation in the way that we are doing to ourselves. They kind of walk away with a more just general, you know, pleasant experience of the conversation. Um, and so that is sort of a major way we are too hard on ourselves. The other is, uh, as I mentioned, Sebastian Derry's work showing that if you ask people, like, how much do you go out compared to the average person? How much, you know, how many friends do you have? How central are you to your social network compared to the average person? He finds that we tend to underestimate our role in our social groups and think that we're, you know, less social and have less friends uh, than we actually do. So like one of the conclusions is the average person thinks that they go out less and are less social than the average person, which of course is impossible. Um, and again, it's because we sit on the couch and we're flipping through Instagram and we see people like out doing things, you know, with friends, at parties, at dinners, whatever. And 
we compare ourselves to this constant, you know, barrage of just images of social people, forgetting that, you know, so many of our friends are also sitting on their couches, like scrolling through Instagram at the same time. And we are much more just normal <laughs> than we think. We're not like under uh, social. And so that's another way we're just, we tend to be really hard on ourselves when it comes to the social domain and what I, you know, basically the classic, like our ability to win friends and influence people. And, you know, taking it back to requests that, you know, we might feel we've made a request about something that's important to us and we might walk away going, you know, I felt really pushy. Did I, did I phrase that right? Did I get that right? But the other person could well just be very genuinely pleased that we felt comfortable enough to make a request and with the opportunity to help us, whether or not they were able to in that moment or not. Yeah, exactly. And there, there's actually research um, on asking for advice, right? We think that if we ask someone for advice, they're going to judge us negatively when in fact they judge us more positively when we ask them for advice because they're flattered that we would think that they would know something that would be helpful to us. And so again, like there's just so many examples in the literature that suggest that we just are way too hard on ourselves. And, you know, we, we think everyone notices the most embarrassing negative things about ourselves and people really just are not paying attention to that stuff and feel more flattered when we say nice things or ask for their help than we imagine and really just kind of see us in more broad, positive strokes than we realize. Okay. Well, final, final question. If there's, if there's somebody listening right now who has an important request to make, either in the workplace, in their lives, out in their community, um, and they have to make it tomorrow or in the near future. What's the what's the one thing? What's the one piece of guidance you would give them? What's the one thing you would want them to know? I think of all the things, the most useful is to start from a place of assuming that they're gonna say yes. Right? Because that kind of lets everything else fall into place. If you assume the other person is gonna say yes. You don't negotiate yourself down before you ask and like ask for too little, right? You ask for what, if this person's going to say yes, I'm going to ask for the thing I actually think I deserve or want, right? It usually will help you ask in a better way where if I think the person's going to say yes, I'm not so scared to ask that I have to send an email. I might actually ask in person, you know, and assume it's going to go more pleasantly than I think it might, you know, I don't have to be like rejected over email. A lot of people will use email because the rejection feels less painful, right? But again, assume they're going to say yes. And I think it also sets the tone of asking, you know, you, you don't ask in like this kind of desperate way. You don't push too hard. You ask in a more level tone that people respond better to. Um, and so, yeah, I think if there's one thing to sort of keep in mind when making a request, just start from the assumption the person is going to say yes. They may not, but start from that assumption, right? Not the assumption they're going to say no. There's a piece of language that I heard recently just to yes and that, which I just thought was beautiful if you find it hard to ask for 100% of what you want. And the language was, you know, if I had a magic wand, it would look like this. And there's just this acknowledgement that, you know, this is this is perfect. This is my perfect situation. That might not be possible. But what the other person hears is that's 100% what they want. That, that there is their 100%. And then they start there, you know, in their, you know, how do we make that happen? 
but just that I just that languaging of you know if I had a magic wand I've started using it now with people as well who I can feel are having difficulty asking for what they want you know if you had a magic wand right now what would it look like and I don't know that just that magical language just gives us permission somehow to ask for what we want yeah I love that I think if it's hypothetical we can say things that we don't feel like we can say if we're actually making the ask. Like if I were to ask you this, hypothetically, this is what I would ask for, right? And so that that does, I think in some ways, kind of um, anchor the ask in a positive way. You know, so now the person knows what you actually want. I'll, I'll, I mean, so many problems in these kinds of interactions come from miscommunication and the fact that people aren't open about what they really want or what they're really asking for or really need. And so those kinds of tools that make people feel freer to actually express what they want in a way that's not like overly aggressive, um, I think can be really helpful. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, for anyone who's interested in reading more about Vanessa's research, jump on to jump onto the book. It was just the most fascinating ride for me and understanding that, you know, a, we have more influence than we think that we do. And if we take that as proven, which it is, then the questions that arise after that, which is how do we use it um, and how it can play out in the world at large. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was just a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.